Good morning. You're listening to Sound Bites right here on the Mark Steiner Show, and your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast on WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. Last week, I took a trip down to Exmoor, Virginia, which is a small town south of Chincoteague on Virginia's eastern shore. The same way the communities on Maryland's eastern shore are beginning to organize against the mass expansion of industrial poultry farming, communities in Virginia are beginning to do the same. I moderated a forum for the Citizens for a Better Eastern Shore, exploring the effects of industrial poultry operations on communities, including the construction of poultry houses and the spreading of poultry manure and litter on fields. We did this forum at the Broadwater Academy in Exmoor, Virginia. The ranging panel of guests included Mark Brush, Associate Professor of Marine Science at the Virginia Institute for Marine Science, Dr. Julian Fry, the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health and the Center for a Livable Future, Carol Morrison, former industrial poultry grower who now raises chickens for eggs at Bird's Eye View Farm, Roger Everton and Neil Zaratka of the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality, and Maria Payan, consultant with the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project, who kicks off our broadcast. Hi, um, I am Maria Payan. I uh, work uh, as a consultant, an independent consultant for a nonprofit, which is national, called Socially Responsible Agricultural Project. Um, we actually work with communities that reach out and call upon us as um, they are being impacted either by industrial um, animal production in the forms of uh, permits for um, poultry houses, could be processing plants, um, could be manure to energy, anything that involves that field. I can tell you that I am just like you, had our own business and moved from rural Pennsylvania to another part of Pennsylvania, which was very agricultural. Grew up around farms, uh, totally understood farms, uh, and we actually wanted to raise our child in a way that would be in a rural area where he could enjoy just that kind of a life, the nature, the beauty, um, the farm animals. There was cows on pasture, horses in a field behind us, and my son tried to teach Molly for years how to give me Paul the horse. Um, had to explain that horses don't give Pauls, only dogs do. And life was wonderful. And then they sold the farm. And an absentee landlord bought the property and started building a chicken house one at a time. And by the time they were done, we now lived across the street where we used to see animals out on pasture. There were long barns, longer than football fields, four of them, and 25,000 birds, broilers, in each one. It became a cattle feedlot next to the four barns, underground liquid manure storage, big holding ponds to store the winter storage of the liquid up the street, approximately within a half mile. They put a proposed swine operation in, 2,450 swine. Now, if you can imagine, this is all within three quarters of a mile, and two of them are at the same address directly across the street from me. What I want to describe is a community view of what it's like to live there. I will tell you now that I have moved out of my house a few months ago, and the reason for it was because my husband was just treated for radiation cancer. They tested my now 17-year-old, but he was 16, for cancer in the springtime. It's not normal for your child to go to school and then get off of the bus in front of your house and throw up because the air is that stench. 
in it to where when a child steps off the bus into the air that's supposed to be clean around his home, he actually throws up. I can tell you that I've had to call 911 because the fumes coming inside my house were so strong that I was dizzy inside my own house. I can tell you that when they had a mass mortality at the farm across the street in the middle of summer with 20,000 decomposing birds in the middle of July, it was not fun, if you can imagine that. It was flies literally in the house for months. And we heard a lot of talk about water quality and different things. We heard nothing about what's blowing out the fans at the neighbor's. Okay, and I'm not going to get into that too much because we have someone here that can, but I will tell you that there are effects from all of this. Um, I can tell you that I was taking my child to a doctor at eight years old with tightness of the chest. I can tell you that after the 20,000 mortality, when my child would bathe in the bathtub after a rain event because their stormwater was washing off under the street into my backyard and settling, I was rushing my child to the hospital with palm-sized blisters all over his body. If you ever heard an eight-year-old cry because they don't want to go in the water because they're scared to take a bath, that should tell you what your home can become. The problem with these operations is that when something goes wrong, it goes really wrong. This is not like having, you know, 20 cows on pasture. When you have problems, you're talking millions of gallons. Um, We've had manure spilled all over both sides of the road, liquid, um, hundreds of feet. And what happened? The agent, state agency didn't come out. No, they called the fire chief that was a friend of the operator. He came through sand on it before a rain event. <laughs> this is what you're going to get. My suggestion to you, we at SRAP, um, Socially Responsible Agriculture Project, we are free to communities. I have lived this for 10 years. I know exactly what you're facing. And it's a fine balancing line. I will say one of the biggest impacts is the moral fabric of the community is totally destroyed because now there's a line in the sand. And it's one person's operation versus your home, your health, preserving your environment. How do you create that balancing line? How do you create tourism and what's at the beaches with farming to where it works? And the operations are getting so big that I can tell you it's not working. Our small family farmers are not able to make a living. They need to diversify. We need to create wealth in our communities. And we do this not by using an integrated system where literally a lot of the contract farmers become almost indentured servants to this industry. Right, like sharecropping. So I can tell you, I've dealt with this for a long time. We do a lot of things. Um, I can teach communities how to do water testing. We have some, a program called Water Rangers where we're not going to test and do results for a, any kind of mapping. We're going to test upstream and downstream of where the operation is, and if they're discharging, then it's going to be violated because someone has to step in and take the reins. I can tell you Delaware now, 88% of the water there does not support swimming. 97% does not support aquatic life. We need to think, how many places do we have National Guard bringing water into because the public water is contaminated? This is a defining moment in your community because once the bell rings, you can't unring it. I suggest you get proactive and decide what you want your community to look like because literally you are going to be the ones creating your community. 
How much is it worth to you? Is it worth it for you to be involved? I would absolutely say yes. It's beautiful here. Jillian Fry. I am on the faculty at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health on the Environmental Health Sciences Department, and I work at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, and we study the food system through a public health lens. We take a very broad view. We look at um, worker justice, food insecurity, nutrition, on down the line. My focus has been on industrial food animal production and the impacts on public health and also um, strengths and weaknesses of the regulatory approach in the U.S. So let me just give you a quick summary of some of the pollutants and health impacts that we are worried about in terms of large-scale poultry production. When you have very high (coughs) animal density, things that are coming off of the operation or leaching out where the manure is spread includes nutrients, pathogens that may or may not be resistant to antibiotics, drug residues that might have been u- that were used in animal production, and gases including ammonia, volatile organic compounds. We're worried about particulate matter and heavy metals. I think everyone here is familiar with the large industrial fans that are forcefully pushing the air out of the large Um, poultry operations. Of course, we also know that if these fans shut down, if the house loses power, um, there will be so a buildup of gases that is coming off of the waste um, and from the birds, and they will die. So it's very important that all, all of that air is circulated out, and where is it going? It's going right into the community. If there are proper setbacks and proper zoning, hopefully there's not a direct health impact, but in a lot of cases, um, that's not true. So exposure routes that we're worried about, an exposure route is just how does does this pollutant get to the human population? If research has documented flies as, a, as an exposure route with antibiotic-resistant uh, bacteria on it, that research came out of the center where I work. Exposure routes also include workers, and of course workers are also a vulnerable population. But workers don't stay at the poultry operations. Of course, they then return to their communities after working, um, and they could have um, some pathogens and other items of concern on their person. Research has documented pathogens coming off of the open-air transport trucks. I mentioned the ventilation systems. And the health effects we're worried about include infectious diseases, respiratory illnesses, including asthma, bronchitis, and allergic reactions, thyroid problems, blue baby syndrome if infants are given contaminated water, neurological impairments, liver damage, cancer, gastrointestinal illness, and birth defects. I'm not saying that everyone who lives in an area where there's dense poultry operations experiences this gamut of health concerns. We don't have, the science is not at such a state where we have a count on, you know, if you have 10 operations here, then in this radius you're going to have this number of people have asthma. It's very site-specific. But what I will say is that we're, we're very concerned about vulnerable populations, the very young, the very old, 
and individuals with pre-existing conditions, if you already have asthma and then you live near a, a very uh, high dense area for poultry production, that is, a, that is a very significant health concern. Another thing that's important for me to communicate is that there are not robust monitoring systems in place to make sure that areas of dense animal production are not impacting public health. In all the years that I've studied these issues, that's something that has been really hard to get my head around and to communicate to people because we live in the U.S. We have a robust regulatory system that hopefully, not 100%, but hopefully protects the environment. But it is the regulations for these operations are not created, have not been created to protect public health. I greatly appreciate the talks that we had today, and, and I appreciate people coming to tell us what the regulatory efforts involve. But I want to connect some dots for you. There is no air monitoring. There is no water monitoring of people's private wells. Two thir- I looked up the USGS data. Two-thirds of residents in these two counties, Northampton and Accomack, rely on private, unmonitored wells. There is no system in place to make sure that these poultry operations are not impacting your water. Some pilot studies have indicated that people don't generally test their water unless there's a glaring issue, and you could have high nutrients or high bacteria counts, and your water is not brown, so we don't know. We know a lot more about the marine environment thanks to research like Mark's and other research. We know much less about the direct impacts to public health. That's partly due to a lack of resources for the research. And at our in our group, we're kind of like a scrappy group who, with whatever you know, with the money that we have, we've done some really important research that has gotten arsenicals out of the poultry feed. It's kind of a harm reduction model. Get the arsenicals out because that is ridiculous to have arsenic in the poultry waste that then is being spread on the environment. And research from our group and other groups has also led to poultry companies reducing their use of antibiotics that are important in human medicine. So that's a huge step forward, and I, I do appreciate that the that the companies are, are making that difference. But we do need to keep in mind that I've spoken to many impacted community members, um, actually did research about this, and also talked to regulators. And you may be already familiar with this, but impacted community members have almost a, like a deja vu experience with the between the ones I talked to. You call an agency, that's not in my jurisdiction, call this agency, you call that agency. Unless it fits into very specific regulations such as the Clean Water Act, people don't have jurisdiction over this and more times than not, they will not be able to help you in any substantive way. Carol. Carol Marson, who owns the Bird's Eye View Farm and used to be a contractor with Purdue. I was asked to come uh, and first explain my experience as a contract farmer with a company here on the shore and then tell you the good news. So I'll, I'll start with the contract growing. And I'm sure many of you, if you're not a farmer that's here, you have neighbors or friends or people who go to your church who do raise chickens. I don't know how much of your of their story that you all know. Many don't talk about it. There is fear for talking about it, and the fear is real. I raised chickens under contract for 23 years. And, you know, what was once advertised as part-time work for full-time pay uh, to entice farmers to build chicken houses... Uh, is now considered supplemental income. So that tells you the difference in when you first started and how much things change that your income goes down. 
chicken companies today are offering cash incentives for people to build chicken houses. From what I have seen here on the peninsula, most <laughs> operations are applying for at least six chicken house permits, if not more seen as high as 15 and one at 21. Um, so we're not talking about your farmer next door who's adding a couple of chicken houses into the family farm. We're talking about developments of chicken houses. These are not farms. These are people who are buying up prime farmland, coming in, building these chicken houses, <coughs> and living elsewhere. So they're not really you know, part of the community. Uh, they have no ties to the community. They just collect whatever it is they collect. I can't imagine how much they're collecting because money's just not there. The houses that are being built today will hold up to 60,000 chickens per house. When we built our two chicken houses back in 1987, they were state-of-the-art. Each house held 27,200 chickens. So we raised 54,400 chickens, five and a half times, so industry estimates number of flocks. I don't know why we just don't say five. Um, but anyway, that many per year. Now we have 60,000 per house. If you take a person who wants to build six chicken houses, there's a cash incentive now being offered. Each house costs upwards of $380,000 a piece. So we're talking a lot of money, millions that are being invested. If a person builds six uh, with the cash incentive that the companies are offering, a bonus of 67000 and some odd dollars goes for each house that you put up. Okay, if you do the math, the cash incentive will pay for the cost of one house off of the others that you're building. Okay, simply put, the farmer's paying for five, cash incentive company pays for one. As I said, they hold 60,000 chickens per house. This cash incentive is the only way that a cash, a positive cash flow can be shown to a potential lender, okay? It's, it's where you, you're showing that money's coming in and you're able to pay back this millions of dollar loan that you want just to build chicken houses. And I might add that a contract with a company is good for only one flock. It may be terminated at any time. The, the lender is going to ask to see where you're going to get your positive cash flow. One thing that has always stymied me is that manure on the balance sheet is considered to be an asset to make your cash flow. And I'm sorry, but I need to take a, a moment here. If manure is an asset, why are we as taxpayers picking up the bill? Studies show that almost 70% of contract chicken farmers live below the poverty level from the income from chickens which makes absolutely no sense. This was a study out of Alabama that collected data all over the country from all kinds of farmers and developed the, the figures. Okay, the, as, you, as I've said, raising chickens is under contract. Contracts are designed by the company, are non-negotiable, and offered on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. After investing over a million dollars, the grower has no choice but to sign the contract. Changes in contracts to shift more of the cost off of the company onto the grower. Constant demands for upgrades in housing and equipment, they're not unusual. So you go back to your lender and you borrow more money just to be paying to raise chickens to earn a below poverty level income. The threat of doing these things, instead of saying, nope, that's it, I'm not going to do it, comes from 
the fact that either you do what the company says or you can have your contract cut, and that's your choice. So as someone just said a while ago, sharecropping at its best. Through the contract, uh, the pay to the grower is determined using a really complicated formula, and I'm not going to go into it because I never did understand it after 23 years. Um, you know, there, we've had accountants take a look at these formulas, and they can't even figure them out. So I know I'm not going to figure them out. There's no checks and balances to ensure that the grower is fairly compensated, and there have been times that things have been proven that the pencil wasn't quite correct in payment. The grower invests in the land, buildings, and equipment and agrees to raise the company chickens to a marketable age, period. That is what the contract's all about. The company supplies the chicks, feed, medications, and other necessary items that they determine is needed to raise the flock of chickens. Each company has a program that the farmer is supposed to follow, and they're obligated to follow it. They have a person that comes out to the farm at least once a week to check on the chickens and the farmer to see, make sure they're doing the right thing. A report card type of form is left after the visit and tells the grower what to do. Uh, the grower makes no decisions regarding the growing of the flock of chickens, including feed formulas and medications. Uh, the cost and responsibility of more dis manure disposal has been pushed off on the farmer, um, although the companies do own the chickens and everything that goes into it and comes out of it. Uh, so the responsibility for the, all of that goes on to a grower who is making a below poverty level income from the chickens. So grower can't afford it. Guess who can? The taxpayers again. After all that good news, I'm going to tell you better news. It's all not as bleak as what it seems. Um, after 23 years, I transitioned our farm over to a 500-head flock of laying hens on pasture for eggs. And um, from those 500 hens, I've proven through a grant through USDA Value-Added Producer Grant, doing a business plan, feasibility study, marketing analysis, you name it, I did it. The 500 hens earned me more money than the chicken houses ever did. That's only with 500 hens. So you figure I'm going from 54,400 chickens every seven weeks to 500 hens out on pasture, rotating them around so that no certain area of the farm is saturated with manure. It allows the pastures to grow back up, rejuvenate, and we go round in circle and do the rotation. Environmental problems on my farm don't exist because I don't have way too many animals on the land. I, I have less animals on the land than what the land can support. I'm quite proud of myself in a way for taking that issue off the board and out of my face because I know now the land I'm leaving to my children isn't saturated with manure. The eastern shore used to be known for truck farming. Uh, there was, for those of you who have been here a very long time, there were incomes coming into the farm, being spent in the communities. It was a thriving business. Very slowly, this was taken off the plate, and we became known as a concentrated area for raising chickens. These things are possible to do but it takes a community to do it. 
every farmer could go out there and start raising different things on their farm. But we do need the community members to support it. And in turn, those dollars that are earned on the farm are spent back in your community. We're, we're talking about keeping dollars local. And this is what will rebuild communities, not, you know, shots of government money to try to make the issue better when it just keeps getting worse. So I consider that to be good news for the Eastern Shore, and I know there are more farmers out there than me, I just met one tonight, who are doing different things on their land. And the opportunities are there, and I hope all of you would encourage your farmers to maybe try taking a look at it. You're listening to a forum on the community impacts of industrial poultry operations I moderated in Exmoor, Virginia, on Virginia's Eastern Shore, which was put on by the Citizens for a Better Eastern Shore. We'll take a short break, but when we come back, we'll hear the rest of the conversation on Sound Bites here on the Mark Steiner Show. Stay with us. Sound bites right here on the Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast on WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. In this hour, we're listening to a community forum I moderated on Virginia's Eastern Shore, which took place in a small town called Exmoor. The forum, which examined the effect on communities from industrial poultry operations, was organized by Citizens for a Better Eastern Shore. The panelists included Mark Brush, Associate Professor of Marine Science at the Virginia Institute for Marine Science. Dr. Julian Fry of the Center for a Livable Future at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Carol Morrison, a former Purdue poultry grower who now runs Bird's Eye View Farm. Roger Everton and Neil Zaratka of the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality. And Maria Payan, consultant with the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project. And a lot of you have a lot to say, questions and thoughts for people on the panel. The research I was doing before I got here, I think that if I have it right, the last stat I saw on the eastern shore itself, on Delmarva completely, there were 569 million-plus chickens that are raised every year. 24 million of those are in Accomack County. So, I mean, it's a growing industry, and, that, and I think what you described is where the industry is going, which are people who are not farmers actually buying up a lot of land to raise chickens, and that's becoming really a, a piece here. What about the disposal of the mortality? How is that taking place? Um, at, at this moment, um, taxpayer dollars uh, paid for composting bins. And in Maryland, I'm sure Virginia's probably going to have it. If they don't already, I know Delaware does. Uh, freezers are going to be put on the farm. This is also uh, your state government program where the mortality goes in there and then it is picked up by an unknown someone who will take and render the carcasses. Uh, my guess it'll go back into chicken feed. So is there a government plan? I'm Neil Zorotka, um, and I was talking. Yeah, as far as the, uh, the permits require as far as mortality disposal, one of the, the key uh, changes that was made in 2000 was the elimination of, of in-ground disposal. Disposal pits was something that was outlawed. So as far as the regulations right now, 
the regulations um, require such things as composting is is the most common. There are uh, a few small incinerators out there, but very few. Uh, okay, so most. I'm talking specifically here on the shore. Most most of the uh, mortalities are are composted. On the site, on. Yes, ma'am. And they're yes, monitored. Yes, and it's part of it's part of uh, what's inspected during uh, inspections of the of the facility. Hello, thank you. A couple quick questions. I noticed on the on the map that um, uh, Roger put up there showing the streams that were impaired or levels of impairment. It seemed like just about all the streams on the bay side of the eastern shore showed some level of impairment. And so my question is, when you're doing your permitting for soil applications of manure or other things, does that take into account what's currently on the ground right now or just what the loads from that would be? Does it look at what that individual permit is doing or does it take a cumulative effect of looking at all the other permits that have already been issued? Thank you. The map that I depicted that showed imperatives, you have to drill down to each impairment in each stream to see they are segmented, determine what the impairment is. So part of the stream could be impaired for bacterial contamination resulting in, and a resulting shellfish impairment, so it's listed as impaired. Uh, there may be additional impairments on that stream, so to drill back as to the cause and effect uh, is not uh, known at that time. Right, and, and I think your questions were about whether or not the, uh, the location of a proposed facility uh, to be permitted would be impacted by uh, the presence of an Im impaired stream. And really that is, it kind of goes back to what Roger was saying about the sources of impairments. Um, and typically you're going to have a lot of different sources of non-point source pollution. Typically uh, what we'll see is that permitting is not going to be affected by the, the TMDL mainly because one of the things that permits require are the implementation of best management practices. And that's one of the key pieces of implementation of a TMDL is making sure that proper agricultural best management practices are applied when you do have agriculture. So that's, that's one of the things that the, the Let me, I'd like to get some feedback from if Julian, you want to jump in, and Mark, maybe you want to jump in on this too. The gentleman brings up a very key point, and I can speak a little bit more to the situation in Maryland because I live in Maryland and I've studied Maryland. Um, I don't know the precise workings in Virginia, but in Maryland we have a phosphorus management tool. It, has been, it was recognized many years ago that we had way too much manure in the areas where there's high density. Um, the science was known for a long time, and then the regulators kind of caught up to the science, um, partly because of the, uh, the Chesapeake Bay watershed cleanup effort, the TMDL effort. Still, even with the with the phosphorus management tool and the legislators, um, the state legislators in Maryland saying, you know, we're not sure if we can, even though we know that's the science, it's rock solid science, you know, we're not sure that we can really ask farmers to meet it on the timeline that, that you want to because of the economic questions. So this, this tells us a couple of things. We know that the density is not 
compatible with a well-functioning environment, and they are still issuing permits for those areas. Um, so then, like Carol said, the taxpayers are picking up maybe not 100% of the bill, but a significant portion of the bill to truck that manure somewhere else. The cumulative effects and the present animal density is not taken into account, and that's partly because if you have your NIPTES permit and you're following best practices, the presumption is that you have zero discharge. But we just saw in this present presentation that as poultry density goes up, you do have discharges. So there's a separation between regulations and reality, unfortunately. I'm also from Maryland, and we cover this a lot. Maryland's wrestling right now with what you do with the litter. One of the debates that's going to take place in the Maryland legislature is the Poultry Literature Management Act about what happens to the litter, where it goes, all kinds of debates. You use it for fuel. Does it get trucks somewhere else you use to, for farmers out of state? I mean, there's a huge argument of who pays for it. Do the poultry companies pay for it? Should the state pay for it? I mean, this is, that's the debate taking place right now about what to do with the phosphorus management tool, which leaves a lot more litter than before because they're managing it, and that leaves more piles of it. So that's happening here, and it's coming to a house near you. I see we're the skinny end of the peninsula, so if you're running out of room at your end, we're not going to have room for your stuff, let alone our own. Mark? Yeah, well, I, I uh, am, am not at all qualified to comment on the regulations and the siting, but I would just point out... Um, you know, the, to, to number one, not ignore nitrogen because because the farther you go down the the, the peninsula, um, it, it, certainly in the Chesapeake Bay and on this side as well, nitrogen becomes more the the pollutant of concern over phosphorus. Although both are important, the the thing that I would comment on that really struck me by by the the map of impairments, and again, it's hard to know what exactly the impairments were, but assuming many of them were water quality, you know, what stands out to me on that map is all, almost all of the red impairments are on the bay side, right? And and whereas on the seaside here, it, it's it's much fewer. And, and what a lot of work has shown uh, that, that for a long time, what's been, we always focus on the nutrients coming in from our watersheds, uh, but, but what, what's always been underappreciated and, and what increasing evidence uh, is showing is the importance of the water that, that's advecting in, that's moving into these, these tidal creeks and these estuaries and these coastal bays from offshore. Um, what that, it's a big volume of water and it carries with it uh, nutrients as well. Uh, often as many as come from the land, it's just diluted. But I think what you're seeing in that, that, that map underscores a real advantage you have here on the seaside, a real attribute you have on the seaside in these systems is very clean water coming in from the Atlantic Ocean every day or two times a day on the tides, um, and, and you know, that which provides something of a natural filter and a buffer. Um, of course, we don't want to mess with the buffer, and I'm not suggesting that you do, but it's just a, it really stood out to me is, is an important attribute you have, and the further you go down the peninsula, the better it gets. I just wanted to sort of share a different perspective, more of a historical one, but in these two counties are the top five agricultural producers in the state, producing a diversity of agricultural commodities. But if you look back in the history, during the early 1900s, uh, these two counties, Eden Shore, were the richest agricultural <coughs> counties in the United States, and that was due to the abundance of food processing facilities located in both counties. Uh, and probably to look at it in current situation, the U.S. Census reports that the poverty rate on the Eastern Shore of Virginia for the past 30 years has increased over each of the 10-year census periods to more than 20% of fam families and 20% of individuals. And over a five-year period since 2005, total employment in both counties has declined by over 16%. I really appreciate that perspective, um, and it's also showing that as the poultry industry has taken hold of this area and really expanded, poverty has gone up, population has gone down. I'm not saying that it's a causative relationship. Um, 
But I absolutely agree with the importance of infrastructure, and not just built infrastructure, but um, support from things like Extension and USDA and um, the, the state-based agricultural departments, research from your land-grant universities. All of that has shifted towards an industrialized, globalized food uh, system. And then what we get in certain areas is when you're producing soy, corn, and poultry. And corn is a very leaky crop. When you fertilize corn, a lot of that runs right off into the environment. Um, what, what you get is an environment that is completely out of balance. That's what we see here. Um, and, and it's not healthy for the people either. And at the Center for a Livable Future, we would be so thrilled to work in collaboration with folks on Delmarva in, in doing research and getting partners on board to build up the regional food system again. Because if you think about the, the strength that Delmarva has is the proximity to the whole East Coast and the, the region here, you have very large population centers that, that you could, um, if you diversify your farms back to how it was, um, but in a new way, in a modern way, there, are, there are, is a, are many large population centers who want to get responsibly, sustainably, justly produced food, um, you know, in schools, hospitals, et cetera. So um, we would be so thrilled to be part of that effort, and I completely agree. Infrastructure and everything related to that is so important. And, what, you know, once you're down that hole, like somebody said, we're really down a hole, um, it's hard to get out of it, but it would be really important work. The data and the figures that you've collected is is wonderful but it does show that in the early 1900s when it was minus a poultry industry the two counties were the richest in the country now they're getting close to probably being some of the poorest so if this industry that is putting so much money out there for the the employees and into the community it's hard for me to understand why the poverty level is so high in both counties. I, I just don't get it. The numbers don't add up. You did make the point of the early 1900s, and that's what I was speaking of. Agriculture was highly diversified at that time. Now it is not. There's only four things that go around on this peninsula. It's corn, soybean, wheat, and chickens. Uh, tomatoes, I did, I'm sorry, you, you're absolutely right. Um, tomatoes are a big thing in, in the two Vir Virginia counties, um, not so much up our way, but some. And that's all we have. If we support and encourage through all of the programs right now that subsidize the food industry and, and we level the playing field for farmers who want to be independent and, and do different things, and, you know, level out the divvying of money to support farming, then we'll have a level playing field, and I think you'll see a huge change in food production. There was a good segue about the, the history of agriculture in the county. The uh, poultry industry of today is not anywhere near uh, equivalent to any of the agricultural industries that were here formerly. It is about the business model. And, the, and uh, formerly, the money stayed here. They were local producers, local um, uh, uh, processors. Now the money leaves the shore. It goes to Purdue and Tyson, 
They are the oligarchs in charge of it. The money goes out. The chickens go out to Qatar, to Asia. The pollution stays here. So let's talk about the subsidy that the residents of the Eastern Shore pay to Purdue and Tyson. Um, and this has got to stop. Each time there is a fire, a spill, another payment is made to the industry from the citizens of the Eastern Shore. Each day there is air pollution and health effects in the environment, in our environment, we pay. We are, we are paying. Disease outbreaks like Fisteria and SARS, which will be, they're inevitable. It's a probabilistic thing. Things break, fans break, trucks uh, uh, roll over, okay? Fires start. There are fires every year on the shore uh, from the uh, chicken waste, okay? Each time as that is, we pay. We pay from the poison shellfish. We pay from our waters that are eutrophied by the phosphorus and the nitrogen and algae blooms. All these costs are not figured in to the profits and loss of Tyson and Purdue, nor are they figured into the cost of their sharecroppers, but they are paid by us. The industry grows. As the industry grows, the subsidy grows. Who is going to do the research to find out how many chicken houses we can support before the tipping point comes? Let me go back here. So okay. That people, okay. So, because I hear nobody saying that. All right. So, let's, so what do we know about the science? Sure. About numbers of chicken houses that a community like this, other communities can support. What do we? What, what do you? Right. What can, how well, do you that that is the one of the uses of these types of models that I presented, and we can certainly run those scenarios. The the problem is that there are a number of uncertainties, which I tried to allude to. Um, and, and, you know, we, we run these simulations. There's a number of parameters. Each of those parameters we, we don't know very well. There are certain things about the chickens that, that give us the special headaches, things like, uh, you know, the waste is kept on these pads. How, how much really leaches? It's, it's very hard to know that. How much volatilizes? It's very hard to know that. How much is exported? Where does it go? How much is imported? Where does it go? Um, and so it's very, so there's a lot of uncertainty there, but, but that is what these models are useful for. Maria, let me let you say something, and Jill will come to this gentleman right here. Maria? Yeah, I want to address that a little bit because I tell you what, this is, I'm glad you brought that up. This is uh, one of my um, strong problems with this is that when you go to do a nutrient management plan, although someone has to account for where it's going to end up, that plan does not have to be public. If it's a broker involved and they're taking it out of state, or to another farm where it has an end use, that plan is not publicly available to say this operator is taking it to that farm, right? In Virginia, they are. All nutrient management plans in Virginia are public information. But the receiving end of the plan, how would somebody access that because it's not a permit? So how, how would they access that? If it's, where would you access that? If I want to see where someone is a receiving end, where would I if, come to your office? If DEQ were inspecting that to make sure that they were compliant and we were to have that record in our office, then it would be public information. If, it, if it's not in our office, it's not public information. So you'd be correct. If it's someone that has a plan go. as an end user. So in other words, our tax dollars, okay, and I want everybody to get this because I want you to call your legislators, our tax dollars are paying to truck manure back and forth between states, between farms, and this is 
subsidized with public money, and guess what? Nobody knows where it's going. And I can tell you this because I looked at a specific application in York County for a Hillendale operation, okay? We're talking 3 million birds, okay? The manure they had on the technical comments need nutrient balance sheets that it's crossed out and it says out of state. So in other words, the manure from 3 million birds is going into Maryland, but guess what? I called Maryland. Nobody keeps track of what's coming in. This is a big game. There is no accountability at all. So you should be aware of that, and you should be aware that your tax dollars are supporting this. And I'll tell you, farmers who are contracted, some states require them to be in order to get money for conservation loans. So the whole program is set up and designed to push farmers into this type of farming. And like you say, it benefits the stockholders, you know, not the communities. Individual farms, I know farmers who want to farm right, but they have to take their animals two states away because there is no longer an independent processing plant. The whole system we need to put together, like Jillian said, it's, it's not, you know, an easy thing to do anymore because it is guided in this direction. Of industrialization. And I mean, there are no independent processing plants in the Eastern Shore. They, you have to, you, no. they have to. If you if you have an animal, you got to take it somewhere else. Right. Pennsylvania is probably the closest place you can go. Yep. So again, and then we we'll go right here. Delaware has a U.S. U.S. If, if I could just try to add a little bit of clarification in terms of the nutrient management plans. So when a farm creates a nutrient management plan, they will say how many of what animal they have and what crops they're going to grow and the acreage. And then, depending on the state, they will, there will be soil samples that tell you the, level, you know, the levels and the types of soil that you have and, and the appropriate amount of the manure that you can apply there. Um, the problem is the nutrient management plan... Uh, the way that they operate, we, Maryland and Virginia have had nutrient management plans for a long time, but we, we still have the issues that we have. It, it's, it's based, it's on paper, it's, it's record-based, and then you have some inspections. I mean, think about how, how uh, geographically dispersed our agricultural system is. You know, you can't check all the time, and, and, and like one of the speakers said, when you have an end user, so I think when they refer to end user, they're, they're talking about someone who's importing manure onto their farm. They're not talking about all farmers applying manure as the end user. It's just end users that are taking in um, manure from another farm. And he referred to it as complaint-based. So we don't really know how well the, the manure levels are being applied according to nutrient management plans. I mean, we, either the nutrient management plants aren't adequately protecting the environment from over-application or, or their people are not following their plans. Because if you look at the nutrient loads in our watershed, the uh, U.S. Geological Survey will come out every so often with a report on Delmarva and say some of the highest levels of nutrient pollution and also pesticide residues in this watershed. And that's where we're at. We've had nutrient management plans in place for many years. From what I'm hearing about uh, chicken manure, chicken waste coming off of these uh, farms, I mean, it sounds to me like it should be considered a hazardous material when it's being transported. Is that the case? I mean, no. No. All right. But it certainly sounds like it. Okay. That's an editorial. 
Second question is, it sounds like no matter where we are, and you, the gentleman from the DQ talked about setbacks. I don't know what those values are. But it sounds like up to this point, setbacks at best are just an absolute guess as to what they should be. I mean, based on your models, uh, Mr. Rush and uh, uh, Ms. Uh, Fine, if I were to say to you what needs to be done to be able to develop models that would give you a scientific basis to say these are safe setbacks from streams or the, or the bay side or the ocean side or homes, okay, from an air perspective, what data, what data don't you have and why don't you have it and how could you get it? Interesting questions. Where do we go first? The state, and then we can come over to. Uh, I'm just going to make a real quick comment in that the uh, the setbacks from water bodies um, and the, there's are backed by by research regarding um, vegetated setbacks versus non-vegetated setbacks and so forth. That's why uh, in Virginia, if there's a vegetative setback, then it's 35 feet from a stream for land application. If it's non-vegetated, it's 100 feet. But there is there's there's a lot of research about how much nutrient reduction occurs in overland flow and in subsurface flow as far as distance from streams. And, I mean, I'll just ag agree that, that there, there is an awful lot of information, uh, and there are models out there, watershed models out there, that would address those sorts of questions. Mine is not one of them. Mine is a, a fairly simplified, very large area model that doesn't consider real small spatial um, differences in terms of buffer widths and that sort of thing. So it's it's not the kind of thing mine would address, but um, you know models uh, do exist um, that that do have that level of spatial resolution. My issue with with that is that the the finer you make, the finer resolved you go, and the more complex you make them, I, I, you know, it's you require a lot more data to build them, and you get a lot more uncertainty in them. So there's a trade-off there. I, I tend to go to the other end of the spectrum. And when you go from environmental impacts to health impacts, it gets a lot more complicated. We are looking into this issue at our center, um, but we don't have the information that's necessary. Um, you know, it depends on the species. It depends on weather patterns. It depends whether there's um, vulnerable populations living nearby. So we are frustrated by the same uh, gaps in the science. Um, there's certainly some science, you know, where you can support a decision just based on the science that we have. We're also looking into that. But in terms of a definitive answer, um, you know, based based on specific situations, we're a bit a uh, ways um, from, from that in terms of a public health perspective. Ma'am? So I didn't hear any discussion <coughs> on the amount of groundwater or groundwater usage by poultry industry. Um, should we have any concern about that and our aquifers in the eastern shore of Virginia? I mean, that <laughs> I'm told the answer is yes, but I don't know any more than that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's, yeah. If, if, we, if we look at what happened in California with agriculture and aquifers, I mean, it's a really serious right. question. Yeah. The only water we have here is rainwater that falls. We have no supply from the mainland or north. That's from Painter south to the tip. From, from the farm aspect, of course, the animals drink a lot of water. With the new housing that is totally enclosed, the only way to, to cool the chickens during the summertime when temperatures reach a certain degree um, is through what they call foggers. It's a misting system that runs in conjunction with the fans. So, of course, if you're building more chicken houses, you're using more water. 
that isn't scientific based it's just common sense oh thank you for the opportunity to speak um not so much a question but a general comment uh it's been a great forum but there's one component missing of this whole thing where's the representatives from tyson and purdue um they should be here uh this is about them are they afraid to come they need to be a voice um to tell what they're doing about the problem, what the perspective is, and how they can help fix the problem. If they're not in the equation, oh, they're part of the problem. Um, I do know that neither Mr. Tyson nor Mr. Purdue will ever come and address any of you. Um, normally, the program is, is that they go through the trade association um, in any given state or area. Uh, here it's Delmarva Poultry Industry Incorporated, which is DPI. But don't look for Mr. Purdue nor Mr. Tyson to come and talk to you. I don't particularly care about them, but a representative would have been nice. Uh, I agree. Um, they're creating the problem. They're part of the problem. They should be here to address it. I want to thank the panelists who joined me for this community conversation. Mark Brush, Julian Fry, Carol Morrison, Roger Everton, Neil Zaratka, and Maria Payan. I also want to thank the organizers of the forum, the Citizens for a Better Eastern Shore. That's it for Sound Bites this week, but please join us at the same time next week and send us your thoughts on what you heard today to talk at steinershow.org. The Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at DeMarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Sienna Grease, Manifa Wilson, Calvin Perry, and Morgan Barber. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. To podcast the Mark Steiner Show, share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org, or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. For your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, the Marvel Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>